Lord, we agree with those prayers and do desire that uh, you would, in fact, work sovereignly over things that we've talked about and have been shared concerning concerns, and we desire to see your hand in all of these, and we know that you are always at work, and we praise you for that. We desire to submit ourselves under your sovereign hand to maximize what you want to accomplish this morning, particularly, but throughout the week, and as we walk with you and desire to be in fellowship with you, we desire that if there's anything that is hindering that, that we might confess that this morning. So we commit our time this morning to you, desiring that your word would come alive, even in this distressing picture that is painted in scripture of what mankind is all about. So we desire that your word be clear and that we might apply the applications that you bring to mind. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you are into the sciences, or at least are familiar with science, and science is man's attempt to try to get an accurate picture of what the universe is all about. The attempt is to see what reality is, but even science falls short of giving us a complete and accurate picture of reality. We're utterly dependent on what God reveals and what God tells us. What is real and what he's told us in Scripture is an area that we generally suppress, as Romans 1.18 tells us. Particularly the unbeliever doesn't like to know the accurate and real description of who we are. But even as believers, we tend to revert back to that old nature way of thinking about what reality is all about. So we're going to look at a doctrine that is difficult not to understand, but a doctrine that's difficult to accept. And obviously the world does not accept the concept of what the Bible teaches concerning the nature of man. And the fact that all are guilty before a holy God. So we're going to look again at chapter 3, not quite at verse 9, but further in through verse 20. And we won't complete that. Written to Romans, believers at Rome. I've been stressing that this is for believers. Paul is not writing to the unbeliever. He's describing what it's like to be lost, to be unrighteous, to be in need of salvation. But it's for us to understand the nature of man that we might more accurately and Uh, more, I guess, motivated to be able to share the gospel message with the unbeliever. But I also think that it's there to describe what the old nature is like. So we're going to kind of focus on that as well. And we're looking at first major section of the book of Romans where we need to know this need, this lack of righteousness. Bible uses the word condemned or condemnation. That's chapter 1, 18 through 320. And we're getting close to the end here where Paul is bringing together all of the issues that he's laid out evidence for in chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. We've looked at verse 9, which is an indictment. Think of uh, Romans as written to a courtroom setting. Paul, we've been saying, uses a lot of legal terms and legal descriptions. 
So when he speaks of unrighteousness, that is a legal term. It's an, it deals with standing. Not standing in terms of culture, but standing in terms of a holy God. We stand out of fellowship with him. We stand condemned. That's a legal term. So you can think of these early chapters in terms of the ultimate courtroom where Paul is laying down the case against all of humanity. He gives us an opening statement in verse 18, mankind and without any hesitation, is under wrath. In other words, under a penalty, under deserving that penalty, which ultimately is God's wrath. So that's the opening statement. Then he develops the evidence against, first of all, Gentiles or all of humanity. That's 19 through the end of chapter 1. Lays out the evidence against the nation of Israel or Jewish people. That's chapter 2. And then he deals with the arguments against, or the protest, you might say. In other words, what about this, Paul? What about this? So he's going to deal with the arguments of the defense, one through eight, using this same analogy. And we're looking at the final charge, where all are guilty. He's indicting all of humanity, Jew and Gentile. In other words, everyone. And he's going to emphasize that in verses 10 through 18 where he gives the final proof. And you might also look at it as not only the final proof, but he's laying out the stipulations of the law that condemn all of humanity. Sometimes the law will cite certain stipulations or certain uh, portions of whatever law is pertinent that has been violated. And what we have here are statements from the Old Testament. In fact, Paul calls it the law. So that's where we're at for now. We've been looking at the concept of total depravity. Just a quick review. When we think, or in general, when even believers think of total depravity, they kind of cringe and think, well, that certainly applies to a manson. But uh, the description I gave you, I tried to emphasize... Total depravity, that's certainly a picture, but that's the end product of total depravity. So yes and no, that's not the total picture of total depravity. But we did put a check mark there because we see the end product of it, using him as an example. But we also looked at uh, the cute little girl and said that uh, total depravity biblically applies to her as well. We put the check mark there. And the reason for that, even though she's somewhat innocent, at least innocent looking, right? She still has a sinful nature and stands just in as much in need as a manson for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Just as lost, just as in a desperate situation, even though... The depravity hasn't worked its way all the way to its end, as it has in a Manson. We would say that's also a picture of depravity. Quickly, man is wholly inclined to evil continually. You see that in children. Secondly, totally unable to do anything good spiritually. Now, you can do things of kindness and some what look like good things, but basically... It has no merit before God. 
So thirdly, having no ability to gain anything from God. In other words, we are deserving only of wrath, even the cute little girl. That's depravity. Thirdly, sin has totally affected every area of our being. And I think that is the main stress of the passage that we're looking at. That's why I've got an outline within an outline, total depravity, the different areas of who we are that Paul spells out or at least alludes to and certainly other scriptures elaborate on. And I've got at least eight of them. What's not on the list, you could even include conscience. Our consciences are are affected, are defiled, are damaged. Conscience can even be seared, is what the Bible speaks of. So depravity deals with all of these areas, and there's others. I've only pulled out those that seem to be most evident in the book of Romans. So that's total depravity. And the cute little girl obviously fits under all of those categories, as well as all of humanity. So that's what total depravity is. That's the biblical doctrine. That's what theologians refer to unless they're being distorted. That's what they refer to when they speak of depravity. Quick review. We saw that our spirits are affected. We looked up all of these passages. We won't look at them again. When Paul says we are unrighteous or there's none righteous, he is basically saying there are none that have a spiritual nature that has a right standing before God. Paul in Ephesians describes that as deadness. Spiritual deadness. We also saw that our hearts are affected. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9. Who can understand it? Jesus in Mark 7 describes in uh, other words the, the same concept. We ended by looking, and I changed intellect. I had mind last time. I think intellect is broader. It's not just the brain or the mind, if you will, but it's the total intellect that spills over into the heart and the spirit as well. So the intellect is affected. So we looked at that in verse 11. There's none that understands. I also mentioned it's not that the unbeliever or the sinful nature doesn't understand anything. It's not absolute. But it's in the sense, just like when Paul says we are dead, we still breathe, we still live, we still do things, but he's talking about dead spiritually. So also, we don't understand a single thing spiritually. We don't even have a sense of our lostness. That's why the Spirit must convict us or convince us that we are sinful. So the intellect, there is no understanding in the spiritual area. Certainly man can get a PhD and still be depraved, obviously. There's lots of understanding there, but it's all on a surface material level. doesn't deal with ultimate truth and that that God has revealed. In chapter 1, verse 28, the intellect or the mind is depraved. So everything is touched. We looked also at where this passage comes from. It comes from Psalm 14. And I mentioned that in verse 10, there is none righteous. It doesn't fit in Psalm 14, but I think what Paul is doing is summarizing not only the psalm here, 
But this whole concept of total depravity, I view it more as a summary statement that encapsulates not only deadness, I, I tried to show you that, but also the idea of being totally separate and everything else kind of expands on it. The closest that verse 1 seems to look at, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Corruption. So it has the idea of being corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. That's what makes us unrighteous. There is not or no one who does good. So we can't do anything lasting or spiritual or anything that merits anything before God. And then verse 11, there is none who understands. The question in the psalm is asked, well, not a question, but kind of the issue is raised. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand. Now, Paul doesn't quote it, but what does he do? He gives the answer. What what does God see when he looks down from heaven? There is none who understands. Also, the psalm says, to see if there are any who understands, any who seek after God. And what's the conclusion? What does God see? Paul gives the answer to that. There is none who seeks for God. So that's the next phrase. Seeking for God deals with what? When you seek something, your Your will. Your will. And I broadened it as well and called it volition. So our volition. So there's none who seeks after God. And we'll get to verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And if you notice in verse 1, closes with not even one. This is a little exegetical detail that kind of gives me the clue that perhaps Paul is summarizing 1 through 3 in verse 1 because of the last little phrase. That's how it ends in uh, Psalm 14 at the end there as well. So Psalm 14, verse 3, they have all turned aside. Very similar to verse 12. Together they have become corrupt. Romans, they have become useless. In other words, they no longer serve the purpose that God designed. Useless. And in the psalm, there is no one who does good. Romans, there is none who does good. In the last phrase, not even one. Paul says there is not even one. So it kind of brackets the whole passage, verse 1, coming out of verse Three of Psalm. You think about fourteen. The, the unbelievers, but obviously, as you said, it's applicable also to the believers' sinful nature. Yes. So we, we're yes. still to- our sinful nature is still totally deprived. Right. Yep. Exactly. And we're gonna. I'm gonna emphasize that and bring out some of that aspect. Linda. I'm, trying, I'm learning how to preach the gospel. So. Preach the gospel to yourself. Yeah. This hmm. is. This is it. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. In fact, the idea of being useless, the flesh is useless in terms of anything spiritual. So anything that we accomplish in the power of the flesh avails nothing in terms of eternity. You could even say the flesh doesn't understand spiritual things. It's through the new nature as we renew, we'll talk about that, our thinking that we begin to understand ultimate things or spiritual things and understand absolute truth. We'll come back to all of that. But I just wanted you to see the psalm and see what Paul is doing here. 
what Paul is doing is somewhat uh, paraphrasing the psalm and summarizing it, I think, in verse 1. So, uh, we left off, there is none who seeks for God. Let's talk about this. Now, this is like there's none who understands. It's not absolute. In other words, it's not saying that our volition is totally wiped out, or our will. We still make choices. But I think what it is saying is every time we choose, we will always choose to suppress the idea of God and go in a different direction. That's the nature of depravity. That's when the Holy Spirit comes in and God is the one that initiates, I believe, putting all the passages together. When God initiates, he begins to convict and he does it through his word or biblical principles, the gospel message. And then when we are convicted, something stirs within us. God is drawing us to himself, John 6. In the process of God drawing us to himself through the word, the next verse there, 44 and 45 together, then I think we begin to seek him. But he always takes the initiative. And the reason I say that, because there's lots of verses that encourage us to seek God. But what I'm saying, I think depravity is such that apart from God taking the initiative and God drawing us to himself and God working within us, depravity as such is that we will choose the alternative to God or whatever else is available. When it says there's none who seeks for God, that's the nature of humanity. So it touches the volition as well. The verse goes on in verse 12, all have turned aside. That's a choice. That's depravity. In other words, there's two options. We can go in the direction of God, but all have turned aside. In other words, we are such that, no, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to turn away. Now, he's using vivid language. In fact, this is from another psalm. Remember, the psalms oftentimes are predominantly poetic. And in poetry, you have a lot of images, imagery, metaphorical, non-literal language. And that's what we have here. All have turned aside. The picture is I'm walking on this path and God is in this direction and my own desires are in this direction. I don't go in that direction. I turn aside to this direction. So it gives you the picture of kind of a life pattern or a life direction or a walk, and I'm making choices. So I take the little phrase, there's none who seeks for God, and all have turned aside. In fact, you could include the other. Together, they have become useless. Uh, That's the result of turning aside. That's a result of not seeking for God as we become useless. But that looks at choices. That looks at volition. That looks at our will. Cheryl? How was this in the beginning? Before uh, Adam and Eve were sent, their volition chose God. They had fellowship with God. They had nothing to turn aside to. Now, the first sin was turning aside for the very first time. Here's another option. You could eat of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden. Here's an option. They turned aside. But before that, before sin, their choices were worshiping, fellowshipping, obeying the God that created them. 
And you see that in the first two chapters of, of Genesis. So that's volition. Together they have become useless. We've lost the purpose that God designed. Adam and Eve, in large measure, lost their purpose. Now God restored them. God intervened in the garden, if you remember. What did they do? They turned aside, and what did they do? They hid. That's turning aside. God took the initiative. There's the pattern right there. And he goes into the garden and speaks to them and probes, not because he didn't know what happened, but he asks questions to bring to the surface. What he's doing is he's convicting them. He's drawing them back to himself. He took the initiative, and they are convicted, and there's evidence in the end of chapter 3 that there's belief. They not state it, but in the naming of Eve, Adam acknowledges that all life comes is going to come through Eve as a result of new life from God. So they've lost their purpose. There is none who does good. None chooses or the actions that result from choices. None does good. That's depravity. That's what we mean. We can't do anything that has spiritual or eternal effects, good effects. And then there is not even one. The universality of depravity, in other words, that innocent little girl is not excluded. Little babies are not excluded. They are born with an old nature. It's part of what humanity is all about. So there is not even one. Mother Teresa is just as depraved as you and I. All right, she was in need of a savior. I hope she was saved. I don't know. <laughs> she did a lot of good works. So volition, I changed. You notice the outline sheet. I had will there. I changed it to volition, a little broader. So that's Romans three eleven, and at least the first part of twelve, and then you have the results of those choices. But what does James 1, 13 through 15 say? Who wants to look that one up? James 1, 13 through 15. While you're looking that one up, you can include John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them, and this is what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. In other words, the choices that we make are controlled by another A slave does what the master demands. We are under sin, and sin is a slave master controlling our wills. Who's got James 1.13? Connie, go ahead. Yep. But no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Okay, enticed by his own desires. In other words, the choices that we make dictated by our own flesh. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings birth. Okay, so sin stems from these choices. So our wills are affected. You might ask the question, well, what about all these scriptures that uh, indicate and even command us to seek the Lord? For example, we have Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. 
And there are several others. Psalm 9.10. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. It almost indicates that uh, we have a capacity or an ability to seek God. Well, we have volition and we do make choices. But I believe the doctrine of depravity tells us that the choices will be always against God. In fact, many of these passages, if not all of them, particularly in the Old Testament, pertain to Israel. And a lot of them are in the prophets, like that Jeremiah passage where God is calling Israel back to themselves. So he's he's speaking to believers and calling upon them to seek him. He's not talking about the unregenerate lost heart. The unbeliever, I think, always chooses the path that leads away from God. Now, the new nature, here's the good news, God has given us a new nature, and in that new nature, he has given given us new life, and it's spiritual, so we have a new life with a new spirit. It's eternal life. We have it now. The new nature is what we would describe as regenerated. We'll talk about that in uh, the following chapters. We could also say that the heart now is tender to God. The new nature has tenderized our heart such that now we're inclined. We're more, we're sensitive to spiritual things. It's only in Christ that we get a new nature. Apart from Christ, we remain in our deadness. So it's based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's what uh, we describe in the Bible as regeneration. So our hearts can be regenerated as well. Not only given new life, but we have a new heart. So the heart can be tender to God and responsive to him. Now, We also can see that uh, the intellect is darkened, is dead, is without understanding. But the new nature, that intellect can be renewed. Ephesians 4, in the same context where Paul is describing the darkenedness of the unbelieving mind and the unbelieving intellect, in the same context, he encourages us to renew our minds We renew our minds by learning biblical principles, by studying God's word. So if we neglect God's word, we're essentially thinking the old thoughts, thinking as the unbeliever, we're not renewing our minds. So it's so important to be in the word, studying the word consistently. So it's in the new nature that we can, in fact, have the renewing of our minds. Also, our volition We have a new capacity in the new nature. We have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be able to obey God's word, to obey what God desires, to obey what what we know is right and what we know is wrong. So there's hope for the believer in that we don't have to live in the flesh. Living in the flesh is living just like the unbeliever. We have a new option. We have the new nature. And we have the walk of the Spirit. That's what the Christian life is all about. Walking in the Spirit as opposed to walking in the flesh. 
So that brings us to the next part of the passage here. We've seen in Paul's description of depravity from primarily the Old Testament, the emphasis in verses 10 through 12 is sinful character. Now, beginning in uh, verse 13 through 17, he's going to focus more on the outworking of that character. We can describe that as sinful conduct. So beginning in verse 13, the emphasis is on what we do and our conduct. Now, in uh, 13 through 17, that's one sentence. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Notice even verse 13, but it continues on. It doesn't end till we get to the end of verse 17. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known, period. So he strings together several other passages from the Old Testament. And these are primarily from the Psalms, or at least poetic material. And if you know the nature of poetry, particularly Hebrew poetry, you realize that oftentimes it's very vivid, very non-literal, lots of images. And that's exactly what we have here. We have the picture of a throat as an open grave, a mouth full of cursing, feet that are swift to shed blood. In other words, you don't kick people to death, but the idea here is it's a path that you take that leads to death. So lots of imagery, lots of uh, non-literal language, figurative language that uh, gives vividness, and you can use your imagination here and imagine these images, and you can understand the thoughts or the ideas behind these images. So beginning in verse 13, Let's look at the first one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. A couple of images that he uses in that context. But first of all, notice the throat is an open grave. Now, to get the context, let's go back and take a look at where this comes from. In other words, where is Paul drawing these images? And it appears that they are coming out of Psalm 5. So let's take a quick look at Psalm 5. And there's a couple of things I want to do by looking at the psalm. First of all, I want to develop the context of the passage that Paul is quoting. But also take a look at uh, how is Paul using this passage. It's going to be insightful in helping us to understand how sometimes biblical writers utilize the Old Testament in different ways. So first of all, let's just read some of the passages here. In fact, let's read through it. And this is a lament psalm. And what we mean by a lament psalm, the writer of the psalm is in some deep difficulty. In other words, his life is threatened or he's in some sort of trouble of some sort and he's lamenting and taking it as a prayer to God. So there's several of these And this one happens to be a lament psalm of David. And in a lament psalm, there are different parts to it. In fact, it follows a certain pattern that we call lament psalms. And the first part of it is just basically a cry for help. That's verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 5. 
and imagine yourself in a desperate situation and David is crying out here. So you need to think in terms of what he's saying in, in terms of the situation. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. So you can see he's in pain and he's crying out. Listen to me, God. Heed the sound of my cry. You have parallelism here. Same idea, just calling God to listen and to pay attention. Not that God is not listening or hearing, but it it is the psalmist way of drawing God in into the prayer that he is offering. So in verse 3, in the morning, O Lord, thou wilt hear my voice. See the emphasis here on God listening, paying attention, considering this prayer. In the morning, I will order my prayer to thee and eagerly watch. So that's the cry for help. And then beginning in verse 4 through 7, we have a confession of trust because he knows the nature of God. He can petition and ask on the basis of the nature of God. And this is instructive to you and I. We should, in our prayers, when we are petitioning the Lord, and particularly in a bad situation, we can appeal to him on the basis of who he is. And that's what uh, the writer of the psalm does, who's David in this case. So in verse 4, For thou art not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. In other words, God is a God of justice and righteousness and love. He doesn't take pleasure in wickedness, nor evil dwells with thee. He is a holy God, so we can appeal on the basis of his holiness. David is in the midst of trouble. Now, we don't know exactly his situation, but he is surrounded by evil. It could be early in his his rulership if you remember early in uh, the in his rule he was anointed king but Saul was still in power Saul was still the king even though David had been anointed by prophet and if you remember in the context of that early rulership Saul attempted to kill David on several occasions. In fact, I've counted at least 11 times where Saul attempted to murder David. So David is in the midst of evil things, and he's appealing to God on the basis of his holiness. He doesn't take pleasure in this wickedness. No evil dwells with thee. Then verse 5, The boastful shall not stand before thine eyes. He's in the midst of boastful character, Saul himself. Thou dost hate all who do iniquity. So those that are inflicting pain upon David, he's acknowledging that here. Verse 6, thou dost destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. So this could be early, but we really don't know. It could be later because David had other struggles later on in his rulership as well. Then verse 7, but as for me, by thine abundant loving kindness, notice he's appealing on the basis of God's chesed, God's loving kindness, I will enter thy house. In other words, he's going to enter the presence of God. He's offering a prayer here. At thy holy temple, I will bow in reverence for these. He's submitting himself to this holy God. And then in verse 8, we have the petition or here's the heart of the prayer. It's a petition 
for God to intervene into his circumstance. Oh Lord, lead me in thy righteousness because of my foes surrounded by enemies. Make thy way straight before me. In other words, help me get out of this situation. Rescue me, essentially. And then verse 9, and you'll notice on the slide there, I have it highlighted because that is the verse that Paul seems to be be quoting. So let's read verse 9 and 10. This is the actual lament. This is the complaint. And in this context, it's David lamenting the situation that he finds himself, and he's describing those that are afflicting or persecuting him. So verse 9, there is nothing reliable in what they say. In other words, they're false witnesses. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat, and here it is, their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. And he goes on in verse 10. Now Paul in Romans doesn't quote verse 10, but David says, Hold them guilty, O God, this is the lament, by their own devices let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions thrust them out, for they are rebellious against thee. So that's the lament. Now it concludes in verses 11 and 12, David is anticipating that God is going to intervene, that God is, in fact, going to deal with those that are afflicting. So he praises God for answering his prayer. Now, he hasn't yet, but he's anticipating that God will answer. And he says, but let all who take refuge in thee be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And mayest thou shelter them. Notice praising him that those who love thy name may exalt in thee. In other words, when God intervenes and answers, there's going to be exaltation. And then verse 12, for it is thou who dost bless the righteous man, O Lord. And he's looking at himself in that context. He has a right relationship with God. God is going to bless. And in anticipation of the answer, he praises God. Thou dost surround him with favor as with a shield. So that's the psalm. Now, let's place them side by side and take a look at Psalm 5-9 and see that it is parallel with, with Romans 3, verse 13. So in the psalm, there is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. And then here's the part that Paul quotes. I've got it in red. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. And notice in Romans 13, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. So Paul takes a portion of the psalm. And I think what he's doing here is he's applying it in a broader sense. David is observing those that are persecuting him. They are unbelievers, or they are acting in the flesh, if you will. And this is their character. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. And what Paul is doing is he's taking that and he's applying it in a broader sense. This is also a description of the unbeliever in general. Not just in that particular historical situation that David found himself in, but under inspiration, Paul takes 
the same concept because it's applicable to the unbelieving heart as well. And the unbelieving heart is such that their throat is like an open grave. They have tongues of deception. And then the last part in Romans, the poison of asps is under their lips. That doesn't come from Psalm 5. It uh, more than likely comes from another psalm, Psalm 140. And if you notice Psalm 140, verse 3, they sharpen their tongues as serpents. The poison of a viper is under their lips. And then in Romans, it seems that Paul is putting these two verses together. Poison of asps is under their lips. Now, in the the passage in Romans, the, the word that Paul uses there, asps, is probably a reference to the Egyptian cobra. And what he's saying here is that poison is deadly. And if you know just physically that the the bite of a cobra brings a very quick death within a matter of seconds, if you have enough of the poison injected in you, you will quickly die. So very vivid, very picturesque language. And to kind of further expand that image and also to give you a visual image. If you remember, those of you that were in Israel, if you remember, we saw many graves on the sides of hills in some cases. Now, the photographs here are taken from the city of David. I don't know if any of you remember looking across the Kidron Valley. There's an Arab village just right across there, and this is that village. And in the circles there, you can barely see them in that slide, but let me blow it up with the next slide. Those are graves. Those are open graves. They don't have anything blocking them. Now, obviously, those are ancient, and there are not any recent bodies in there. But the imagery is more of a grave, like this next slide, an open grave. And what's the imagery? What is being conveyed by this imagery? He's comparing a throat. The throat of the unbelieving heart is like an open grave and... What would you expect? In other words, if you dug up in a cemetery today, what would you find? You would find, if it was a freshly buried body, you would find decay. You would find odors, putrid odors, and uh, death. This is what the writer of the psalm has in mind, and this is what Paul is describing here. A throat is like an open grave that all it has is decay and death and putrid odors. This is a picture of what the unbelieving throat is like. And if you read through, you're going to find out. Notice the image is carried through, not only the throat, but with their tongues. So he starts deep in and he's moving outward from the throat to the tongue. With their tongue, they keep deceiving. So death, deception, and then he gets the, the poison of asps is under their lip. It's deadly. Further out. And then now, verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This is what comes out. So instead of decay and odors and death, the mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Notice the progress from deep in, from the throat, tongue, lips, mouth. And the whole idea here is what our words produce. In other words, it produces a life that brings death. 
destruction, that of death and all the things associated with death and its putridness. So in verse 13, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. So this is the unbelieving heart. Only deception comes out of it. And then we could also conclude the poison of asps is under their lips. Destruction. This is depravity. This is not a pretty picture of depravity, but this is reality. So what is in view in all of these images is our speech or our communication, the ways that we speak to others, whether they be close to us or people in the culture. Now, the book of Proverbs has a lot to say about our speech or our communication, and it speaks in terms of similar descriptions as to what we have in uh, Romans 3.13. Evil speech, there are several things it says about it in the book of Proverbs, and I've just got a list here. We won't look them up, but I just want you to be impressed with just the many passages that speak of evil speech. It can be perverse. That's chapter 2, verse 12. It can be a false witness. Chapter 6, verse 19. It can be slanderous. 10.18. Perverted. 10.31. We can speak rashly. In other words, without thinking, without considering the person we're speaking with or the situation. Rash speak. 12.18. And obviously, very clearly, lying is prohibited, 12.22. It is destructive. It destroys, 17.4. It can take the form of backbiting. In other words, bringing people down, downgrading people, 25.23. A whisperer in 18.8. It's another way of describing a gossip, somebody that speaks behind your back and oftentimes with evil intent. Even flattery, 2628, is often given for the purpose of manipulating or for the purpose of evil means or reasoning. It can be a scorner, 298. It can be hasty without thought, without consideration, 2920. So the book of Proverbs speaks Many things concerning evil speech. So, total depravity not only includes our spirits, not only includes our hearts, not only includes our intellect, our will, but also our communication. So, total depravity means that every aspect of who we are has been touched by sin All of who we are has been affected. That's depravity. Now, a New Testament passage is James chapter 3, verse 5, gives another very vivid picture. James is just as descriptive about the tongue as not only the Proverbs, but this passage that we're looking at in Romans. In James 5, verses 5 through 6, so also, and notice all the imagery that he uses here, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and in the prior context, he's already talking about how little parts can have big effect, like a rudder of a ship. But here, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. 
See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. The imagery of setting an entire forest aflame, causing a forest fire with just a small fire. Verse 6, the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. So it's full of sin. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. This little tiny organ defiles everything else. And then it goes on and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. So it's very destructive. If you keep reading, skip to verse 8. But no one can tame the tongue. That's the old nature, our communication. We can't tame it. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Notice it's parallel to what Paul is saying in the passage in Romans. Poisonous. So, our communication is affected. Depravity involves communication as well. Now, let's end on a positive note and go back to the book of Proverbs Because the Proverbs also speaks of the potential of the tongue and the things that are positive from our speech, the things that we can do in a positive realm. I've got another list, and we won't read these, but let's go down the list and we can highlight some of them. First of all, we can speak honestly. We have the potential in the new nature, chapter 4, verse 24. We're encouraged to use wisdom in our speech. In fact, that is a major theme throughout the book of Proverbs, and particularly in reference to the tongue. That's chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. We're also encouraged to not use a lot of speech. In other words, our words should be few, Ten nineteen, And in fact, that one we should read, Ten twenty one. The lips of the righteous... Feed many. In other words, they're nourishing. We could also say they reward. They bring reward. 12.14. They also bring healing. That's 12.18. There is one who speaks rashly, like the thrust of a sword. Then we have the contrast. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. It brings life. And again, we have another contrast. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So we can bring life. It can be gentle and comforting, 15.1. We can speak words that are appropriate to the situation, for example, 15.23. A man has joy in an apt answer, and how delightful is a timely word. So we have the potential both for good and evil. They can be sweet, 1621. They can be precious, 2015. There is gold and abundance of jewels, but the lips of knowledge are a more precious thing. In other words, your words can be precious. And they can also be corrective, 26.4. So, Our speech, our communication has potential for both good and also for destruction and evil. And in the power of the Spirit, our communication can speak truth 
and it can bring healing to those that we speak with. So in summary, total depravity means that every area of our being has been affected by sin and every area is incapable of doing anything good before God. Our spirits are dead. Our heart is wicked. Our minds and our intellect are darkened. Our volition are inclined towards evil, away from God, and our communication brings death. That's a description of the unbeliever who is totally depraved. But we also have the potential, but only through the new nature. Closing thought, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit overcomes the old nature. So we're going to learn later on in the book of Romans that we are not to try to reform the old nature. Don't try to improve it. In fact, we have the alternative of walking in the Spirit, and that means walking in the new nature. We're going to see in chapter 6, we are to put to death the old nature and to live eternal life abundantly in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we praise you, praise you for who you are, Lord. We just thank you so much for your word, for your Holy Spirit that just teaches us all things, reminds us of you, Lord, and we just um, thank you for the understanding that you've given us today and the importance of words and just um, how to pray for you, Lord. But then what we, what you've done, Lord, that allows us to to overcome that, Lord. And so I just pray you be with each of us this, uh, this week. Uh, draw close to you in our quiet times, Lord, as we read the Bible, as we lean on you to fight that depravity, Lord. And um, we thank you for those tools. Amen.